The clock has just chimed midnight. It's June 1835, and we are in Edenton, North Carolina. A summer rain is falling on the magnolias that line a wide carriageway, and the air is thick and humid. From the outside, the manor house, with its huge pillars and manicured lawns, projects the illusion of gentility and culture. One can almost hear the rustle of starched petticoats and smell the fresh lime sipped earlier this evening on the porch. A scarlet O'Hara surrounded by her suitors. But this is an illusion. There is nothing at all civilized or romantic about the antebellum South. It is white colonialism at its height. All of that beauty, all of that serenity and culture was ravaged from the backs of mostly African people. Kidnapped, raped, tortured, starved, and forced into slavery. This is the reality of the antebellum, and its legacy lingers today. Back on that June night in her small upstairs room, I imagine 21-year-old Harriet Jacobs sits upright on the edge of her narrow bed, hesitating, terrified, almost paralyzed with fear, before resolutely committing to her escape from enslavement. listening to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for 500 years of feminist history, philosophy, and writing. In this episode, we are listening to excerpts from Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by Harriet Jacobs, published in 1861. Portia Q is reading for Harriet Jacobs. If you enjoy this episode, please consider donating through the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes, or you can find it on the website at feralculturelab.com. Donations help me pay the actors and support the costs of producing the show. I also want to acknowledge the work of Jean Fagan Yellen, whose introduction in the Harvard Press edition helped me to understand incidents within the context of slave narratives. This episode has been the most difficult so far. I am worried about getting it wrong or sounding stupid or insensitive or naive. But even though I'm nervous, I don't want to overlook the many women of color who have resisted not only misogyny, but also the insidious residue of racism that we have inherited, encoded in such saccharine nonsense as Gone with the Wind. Harriet Jacobs was born into slavery around 1813. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl is her autobiography. Her own account of her life in slavery and the harrowing years a decade she spent on the run after her escape. Though her parents were slaves, her father's skill as a carpenter enabled them to live in their own house, thereby protecting the infant Harriet from any real knowledge that she was a slave. He tried unsuccessfully to purchase his children's freedom numerous times. Despite any respect the slave owner may have had for his carpentry skill, he and his family were still considered property. When I was six years old, my mother died, and then, for the first time, 
I learned by the talk around me that I was a slave. My mother's mistress was the daughter of my grandmother's mistress. She was the foster sister of my mother. They were both nourished at my grandmother's breast. In fact, my mother had been weaned at three months old that the babe of the mistress might obtain sufficient food. They played together as children, and when they became women, my mother was a most faithful servant to her white foster sister. On her deathbed, her mistress promised that her children should never suffer for anything, and during her lifetime, she kept her word. When I was nearly twelve years old, my kind mistress sickened and died. As I saw the cheek grow paler and the eye more glassy, how earnestly I prayed in my heart that she might live. I loved her, for she had been almost like a mother to me. My prayers were not answered. She died, and they buried her in the little churchyard where day after day my tears fell upon her grave. I could not help having some hopes that she had left me free. My friends were almost certain it would be so. They thought she would be sure to do it on account of my mother's love and faithful service. But alas, we all know that the memory of a faithful slave does not much avail to save her children from the auction block. After a brief period of suspense, the will of my mistress was read, and we learned that she had bequeathed me to her sister's daughter a child of five years old, so vanished our hopes. My mistress had taught me the precepts of God's word, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. But I was her slave, and I suppose she did not recognize me as her neighbor. I would give much to blot out from my memory that one great wrong. As a child, I loved my mistress. And looking back on the happy days I spent with her, I try to think with less bitterness on this act of injustice. While I was with her, she taught me to read and spell. And for this privilege, which so rarely falls to the lot of a slave, I bless her memory. Harriet was considered the property of her mother's mistress. Harriet's grandmother was the property of the mother of her mistress's mother. Generations that grew up together, slaves and slaveholders, playing together as children, commiserating as teens, but divided by a social and economic system maintained by deeply entrenched entitlement and violent oppression. These relationships would have been complex, not as straightforward as just hating the oppressor. Harriet's literacy is perhaps an example of this. Being taught to read and write was very rare for a slave, and was actually outlawed in North Carolina in 1830. Harriet's literacy was what made it possible for her to write her own autobiography. Slave narratives were a popular genre, but they were commonly authored by white people who were either writing fiction, like Uncle Tom's Cabin, written by Harriet Beecher Stowe, or the emancipated slave dictated their story to a white author. Over 70 years later, in the 1930s, the Writers' Project, an initiative to stimulate the American economy, would undertake the writing and archiving of thousands of oral narratives from surviving former slaves, primarily by white writers, and now archived in the Library of Congress. But in 1861, when Jacobs published Incidents, the African-American slave narrative was still quite new. 
There are passages and incidents in the life of a slave girl that were hard for me to swallow, things that made me feel sick with shame and with sadness. I wasn't sure whether I would include this next passage. It's one of the most gruesome and graphic in the book. I was afraid of contributing to sensationalism or reducing something that has systemically poisoned modern Western society or making it seem that because the brutal torture of black people is not as common as it was, that racism does not exist. However, to not include it is to sweep it under the rug and pretend that Gone with the Wind is a documentary. In my childhood, I knew a valuable slave named Charity and loved her as all children did. Her young mistress married and took her to Louisiana. Her little boy James was sold to a good sort of master. He became involved in debt, and James was sold again to a wealthy slaveholder, noted for his cruelty. With this man, he grew up to manhood, receiving the treatment of a dog. After a severe whipping to save himself from further infliction of the lash with which he was threatened, he took to the woods. He was in a most miserable condition, cut by the cow skin, half naked, half starved and without the means of procuring a crust of bread. Some weeks after his escape, he was captured, tied, and carried back to his master's plantation. This man considered punishment in his jail on bread and water after receiving a hundred lashes too mild for the poor slave's offense. Therefore, he decided, after the overseer should have whipped him to his satisfaction, to have him placed between the screws of the cotton gin to stay as long as he had been in the woods. This wretched creature was cut with the whip from his head to his feet, then washed with strong brine to prevent the flesh from mortifying and make it heal sooner than it otherwise would. He was then put into the cotton gin, which was screwed down, only allowing him room to turn on his side when he could not lie on his back. Every morning, a slave was sent with a piece of bread and a bowl of water, which was placed within reach of the poor fellow. The slave was charged, under penalty of severe punishment, not to speak to him. Four days passed, and the slave continued to carry the bread and water. On the second morning, he found the bread gone, but the water untouched. When he had been in the press for four days and five nights, the slave informed his master that the water had not been used for four mornings and that a horrible stench came from the gin house. The overseer was sent to examine into it. When the breast was unscrewed, the dead body was found partly eaten by rats and vermin. Perhaps the rats that devoured his bread had gnawed him before life was extinct. Poor Charity! Grandmother and I often asked each other how her affectionate heart would bear the news if she should ever hear of the murder of her son. We had known her husband and knew that James was like him in manliness and intelligence. These were the qualities that made it so hard for him to be a plantation slave. Before I be a slave, I'll be buried in the 
If you want to learn more about the writers in this series, you can sign up for the Feral Culture Lab newsletter. I have been really crappy at releasing the newsletter regularly, but my 2022 resolution is to get better at it, although I'm not entirely sure what form it will take. Also, you can check out the show notes for each episode. They provide a glossary of sorts for the names and references mentioned in each episode, as well as links to other online resources. After the death of her mistress, Harriet had been willed to her mistress's granddaughter, who was still a child. Her father, Dr. Norcom, called Dr. Flint in Jacob's narrative, the master of the house, is a horrible self-entitled lech who attempts to bully Harriet into a complicit relationship. This causes problems for Harriet with his jealous wife. Harriet falls in love with a free black man who tries to purchase Harriet's freedom, but the doctor refuses the sale. Harriet has two children with a different white man. She had hoped he would be able to buy her freedom. But the doctor is a jealous, bitter man. Under the law at the time, Harriet's children are considered his property. This admission was the aspect of her story Jacob struggled with, the shame of what she had done. Ladies did not discuss their sexuality. And Harriet entering into a sexual relationship with a white man would have been shocking, and any justification inadequate. The sexual abuse of female slaves was common, and Jacob's autobiography helped to bring this issue into the public sphere. As punishment for refusing the doctor, Harriet is sent to his son's plantation as a house slave. It is from here that she plans her escape that would see her on the run for 10 years. You might think, with so many slaves, one could banish easily. But in the search for Harriet, her young children are thrown into prison, houses are searched, and Harriet is forced to hide in a crawl space she could not fully stand up in for over seven years. Eventually, an opportunity presented itself, and she escaped to New York. Once in the North, though, she is still not free. There are bounty hunters dogging her movements. She had to leave multiple employment and living situations to avoid being hunted down. A decade after her escape, and on the move again, because she has been warned that the people that imagined they owned her were coming for her. By this time, her legal mistress was now grown and married, and her husband, who of course had rightful ownership of all her possessions, believes Harriet is his property. I kept close watch of the newspapers for arrivals, but one Saturday night, being much occupied, I forgot to examine the evening express as usual. I went down into the parlor for it early in the morning and found the boy about to kindle a fire with it. I took it from him and examined the list of arrivals. Reader, if you have never been a slave, you cannot imagine the acute sensation of suffering at my heart. When I read the names of Mr. and Mrs. Dodge at a hotel in Cortland Street, it was a third-rate hotel, and that circumstance convinced me of the truth of what I had heard, that they were short of funds and had need of my value as they valued me, and that was by dollars and cents. I hastened with the paper to Mrs. Bruce. Her heart and hand were always open to everyone in distress, 
and she always warmly sympathized with mine. It was impossible to tell how near the enemy was. He might have passed and repassed the house while we were sleeping. He might at that moment be waiting to pounce on me if I ventured out of doors. I had never seen the husband of my young mistress, and therefore I could not distinguish him from any other stranger. A carriage was hastily ordered, and closely veiled, I followed Miss Bruce, taking the baby again with me into exile. After various turnings and crossings and returnings, the carriage stopped at the house of one of Mrs. Bruce's friends, where I was kindly received. Mrs. Bruce returned immediately to instruct the domestics what to say if anyone came to inquire for me. This Mr. Dodge, who claimed me as his property, was originally a Yankee peddler in the South. Then he became a merchant and finally a slaveholder. He managed to get introduced in what was called the First Society and married Miss Emily Flint. A quarrel arose between him and her brother and the brother cowhided him. This led to a family feud, and he proposed to remove to Virginia. Dr. Flint left him no property, and his own means had become circumscribed, while a wife and children depended upon him for support. Under these circumstances, it was very natural that he should make an effort to put me into his pocket. Mrs. Bruce came to me and entreated me to leave the city the next morning. She said her house was watched, and it was possible that some clue to me might be obtained. I refused to take her advice. She pleaded with an earnest tenderness that ought to have moved me, but I was in a bitter, disheartened mood. I was weary of flying from pillar to post. I had been chased during half my life, and it seemed as if the chase was never to end. There I sat, in that great city, guiltless of crime yet not daring to worship God in any of the churches. I heard the bells ringing for afternoon service, and with contemptuous sarcasm I said, Will the preachers take for their text, Proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of prison doors to them that are bound? Or will they preach from the text, Do unto others as ye would they should do unto you? Oppressed Poles and Hungarians could find a safe refuge in that city. John Mitchell was free to proclaim in the city hall his desire for a plantation well stocked with slaves. But there I sat, an oppressed American, not daring to show my face. God forgive the black and bitter thoughts I indulged in on that Sabbath day. The scripture says, oppression makes even a wise man mad, and I was not wise. I had been told that Mr. Dodge said his wife had never signed away her right to my children, and if he could not get me, he would take them. This it was, more than anything else, that roused such a tempest in my soul. Benjamin was with his Uncle William in California, but my innocent young daughter had come to spend a vacation with me. I thought of what I had suffered in slavery at her age and my heart was like a tiger's when a hunter tries to seize her young. Writing under a pseudonym allowed Harriet the distance to be able to write more honestly about her experiences. In the introduction to the Harvard Press edition, scholar Jean Fagan Yellen presents the idea that Jacobs had also created a new kind of female hero, a fierce woman able to fight and strong enough to admit being the victim of sexual abuse. You may believe what I say, 
for I write only whereof I know. I was twenty-one years in that cage of obscene birds. I can testify from my own experience and observation that slavery is a curse to the whites as well as to the blacks. It makes white fathers cruel and sensual, the sons violent and licentious. It contaminates the daughters and makes the wives wretched. And as for the colored race, it needs an abler pen than mine to describe the extremity of their sufferings, the depth of their degradation. Yet few slaveholders seem to be aware of the widespread moral ruin occasioned by this wicked system. Their talk is of the blighted cotton crops, not of the blight on their children's souls. If you want to be fully convinced of the abominations of slavery, go on a southern plantation and call yourself a Negro trader. Then there will be no concealment, and you will see and hear things that will seem to you impossible among human beings with immortal souls. I was educated here in Canada with some hugely warped ideas about history. I was in my teens before I realized white men did not discover North America. It existed and was civilized long before their ships of pestilence, violence, and greed set upon these shores. Before their nasty and sinister church took advantage of its influence in Europe to spread its message like a nasty venereal disease around the world. We did not civilize savages. We destroyed culture. We did not even bring God's word. Even within the colonial view of God, it is closer to a Christian definition of the devil's work. We are all exhausted by very real and very complex social issues being reduced to Facebook memes. But behind the virtue signaling and the virtual indignations, there are valid topics, and one of them is the legacy of colonialism that haunts us today. I am not talking about the obvious racist thoughts like schools should be segregated or anti-immigrant sentiments. I mean figuring out how colonialism made us the people we are and how we might evolve into being better humans. Thank you for listening to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for 500 years of feminist history, philosophy, and writing. In the next episode, we are listening to excerpts from anarchist Emma Goldman's autobiography, Living My Life, Volume 1. Called The Most Dangerous Woman in America, her autobiography gives us a first-hand account of many of the events that shaped the 20th century. If you want to learn more about the writers featured in this podcast, visit feralculturelab.com. Mm-hmm.